This episode of the Ortho Bullets podcast will go over the topic of fracture healing from the basic science section on orthobullets.com. Fracture healing involves a complex and sequential set of events to restore injured bone to pre-fracture condition. Stem cells are crucial to the fracture repair process, and the periosteum as well as the endosteum are the two major sources. Fracture stability dictates the type of healing that will occur. The mechanical stability governs the mechanical strain, and when the strain is below 2%, primary bone healing will occur. When the strain is between 2% and 10%, secondary bone healing will occur. As far as modes of bone healing, primary bone healing, again, is when strain is less than 2%. Intramembranous healing occurs via haversion remodeling and occurs with absolute stability constructs. Secondary bone healing, again, is when strain is between 2% to 10% and involves responses in the periosteum and external soft tissues. Endochondral healing occurs with non-rigid fixation, as in the examples of fracture braces, external fixation, bridge plating, intramedullary nailing, etc. This has been a heavily tested point on previous exams, so I'll say it again. Endochondral healing occurs with non-rigid fixation, as in the examples of fracture braces, external fixation, bridge plating, and intramedullary nailing. Bone healing may occur as a combination of primary bone healing and secondary bone healing, depending on the stability throughout the construct. Now let's go over types of fracture healing based on treatment technique. Cast treatment will employ secondary fracture healing with enchondral ossification. External fixation will also employ secondary fracture healing via enchondral ossification. Intramedullary nailing will also employ secondary fracture healing via enchondral ossification and a compression plate will employ primary fracture healing via haversion remodeling. As far as secondary bone healing, we'll go over the different stages of fracture healing, which include inflammation, repair, and remodeling. So as far as the inflammation phase, a hematoma forms and provides a source of hematopoietic cells capable of secreting growth factors. Macrophages, neutrophils, and platelets release several cytokines. This includes PDGF, TNF-alpha, TGF-beta, IL-1, 6, 10, and 12, and they may be detected as early as 24 hours post-injury. Lack of TNF-alpha, for example in the setting of HIV, results in delay of both enchondral slash intramembranous ossification. Fibroblasts and mesenchymal cells migrate to the fracture site and granulation tissue forms around the fracture ends. During fracture healing, granulation tissue tolerates the greatest strain before failure. This has been a tested point on previous exams, so I'll say it again. During fracture healing, granulation tissue tolerates the greatest strain before failure. Finally, in the inflammation phase, osteoblasts and fibroblasts proliferate. Inhibition of COX-2, when you're using things like NSAIDs, causes repression of the RUNX2 osterix pathway, which are critical for differentiation of osteoblastic cells. Moving on to the repair phase, the primary callus forms within two weeks. If the bone ends are not touching, then bridging soft callus forms. The mechanical environment drives differentiation of either osteoblastic, which is a stable environment, or chondrocytic, which is an unstable environment, lineages of cells. Enchondral ossification converts soft callus to hard callus or woven bone. Medullary callus also supplements the bridging soft callus. Cytokines drive chondrocytic differentiation, and cartilage production provides provisional stabilization. 
Type 2 collagen, which is found in cartilage, is produced early in fracture healing and then is followed by expression of type 1 collagen, which is found in bone. Keep in mind that the amount of callus is inversely proportional to the extent of immobilization. Primary cortical healing occurs with rigid immobilization, for example, compression plating, and enchondral healing with periosteal bridging occurs with closed treatment. Finally, moving on to the remodeling phase, this begins in the middle of the repair phase and continues long after clinical union. Chondrocytes undergo terminal differentiation, and this involves a complex interplay of signaling pathways, including Indian hedgehog, parathyroid hormone-related peptide, FGF, and BMP. These molecules are also involved in terminal differentiation of the appendicular skeleton. Type 10 collagen types is expressed by hypertrophic chondrocytes as the extracellular matrix undergoes calcification. Proteases degrade the extracellular matrix, and then cartilaginous calcification takes place at the junction between the maturing chondrocytes and newly forming bone. Multiple factors are expressed as bone is formed, including bone morphogenic proteins, TGF-betas, IGFs, osteocalcin, collagens 1, 5, and 11. Subsequently, chondrocytes become apoptotic and VEGF production leads to new vessel invasion. Newly formed bone or woven bone is remodeled via organized osteoblastic slash osteoclastic activity. And the bone is then shaped through Wolf's Law, which says that bone remodels in response to mechanical stress. Another concept to keep in mind is piezoelectric charges, which is when bone remodels in response to electric charges. Remember that the compression side is electronegative and stimulates osteoblast formation, while the tension side is electropositive and stimulates osteoclasts. So now let's talk about variables that influence fracture healing. We'll talk about internal variables, external variables, and patient factors. As far as internal variables, the blood supply is the most important. So initially, the blood flow decreases with vascular disruption. After a few hours to days, the blood flow increases, and this peaks at two weeks and normalizes at three to five months. Unreamed nails maintain the endosteal blood supply. Remember that reaming compromises the inner 50 to 80% of the cortex. Looser fitting nails allow more quick reperfusion of the endosteal blood supply versus canal filling nails. Remember that head injury may also increase the osteogenic response, which is poorly understood. Mechanical factors in the setting of internal variables that influence fracture healing include bony soft tissue attachments, mechanical stability slash strain, location of the injury, degree of bone loss, as well as pattern, for example, segmental or fractures with butterfly fragments, as there is an increased risk of nonunion, likely secondary to compromise of the blood supply to the intercalary segment. Now let's talk about external variables that influence fracture healing. First, let's talk about low-intensity pulsed ultrasound, or lipis. The exact mechanism for enhancement of fracture healing is not clear. However, there may be alteration of protein expression, elevation of vascularity, and development of a mechanical strain gradient. It's thought that low-intensity pulsed ultrasound accelerates fracture healing and increases mechanical strength of the callus, including torque and stiffness. Remember that the beneficial ultrasound signal is a 30-milliwatt pulsed wave. Again, the beneficial ultrasound signal is a 30-milliwatt pulsed wave. In the setting of a low-intensity pulsed ultrasound, healing rates for delayed unions slash non-unions has been reported to be close to 80%. 
Moving on to bone stimulators, there are four main delivery modes of electrical stimulation. That is direct current, capacitatively coupled electrical fields, that is alternating current or AC, pulsed electromagnetic fields, and combined magnetic fields. So in the setting of direct current, this decreases osteoclast activity and increases osteoblast activity by reducing oxygen concentration and increasing local tissue pH. In the setting of capacitively coupled electrical fields or alternating current, this affects the synthesis of cyclic AMP, collagen, and calcification of cartilage. Pulsed electromagnetic fields cause calcification of fibrocartilage. Keep in mind that bone stimulators lead to elevated concentrations of TGF-beta and bone morphogenic protein. COX-2 promotes fracture healing by causing mesenchymal stem cells to differentiate into osteoblasts. This has been a tested point on previous exams, so I'll say it again. COX-2 promotes fracture healing by causing mesenchymal stem cells to differentiate into osteoblasts. Finally, high-dose radiation can cause long-term changes within the remodeling systems. And keep in mind that in this setting, cellularity is diminished. Finally, let's talk about some patient factors. We'll specifically talk about diet, diabetes mellitus, nicotine, HIV, and medications affecting healing. As far as diet, nutritional deficiencies that can influence fracture healing include vitamin D and calcium. As high as 84% of patients with non-union were found to have metabolic issues and greater than 66% of these patients had vitamin D deficiencies. In a rat fracture model, protein malnourishment decreased fracture callus strength, and it was also found that amino acid supplementation increases muscle protein content and fracture callus mineralization. In gastric bypass patients, calcium absorption is affected because of duodenal bypass with a Roux-en-Y procedure. This leads to decreased calcium slash vitamin D levels, secondary hyperparathyroidism, and increased calcium resorption from bone. Make sure to treat these patients with calcium and vitamin D supplementation, and keep in mind that gastric banding does not lead to these abnormalities because the duodenum is not bypassed. Moving on to diabetes mellitus, this affects the repair and remodeling of bone, as there is decreased cellularity of the fracture callus, delayed enchondral ossification, and diminished strength of the fracture callus. Keep in mind that fracture healing takes 1.6 times longer in diabetic patients versus non-diabetic patients. Moving on to nicotine, it's been shown that nicotine decreases the rate of fracture healing. It inhibits growth of new blood vessels as bone is remodeled. And keep in mind that nicotine increases the risk of non-union. Specifically, it's been shown to increase the risk of pseudoarthrosis in spine fusion by 500%. Nicotine also decreases the strength of the fracture callus. And remember that smokers can take approximately 70% longer to heal open tibial shaft fractures versus non-smokers. Moving on to HIV, remember that there's a higher prevalence of fragility fractures with associated delayed healing. Contributing factors include antiretroviral medication, poor intraosseous circulation, TNF-alpha deficiency, and poor nutritional intake. Finally, let's discuss medications affecting healing. Bisphosphonates are recognized as a cause of osteoporotic fractures with long-term usage. Recent studies demonstrated longer healing times for surgically treated wrist fractures in patients on bisphosphonates. Long-term usage may be associated with atypical subtrochanteric slash femoral shaft fractures. As far as systemic corticosteroids, studies have shown a 6.5% higher rate of intertrochanteric fracture nonunions. As far as NSAIDs in the setting of fracture healing, 
there may be prolonged healing times because of COX enzyme inhibition. Finally, quinolones have been shown to be toxic to chondrocytes and diminishes fracture repair. That's all for this review about fracture healing. Hopefully that was helpful. Because this is a relatively lengthy topic, look out for a separate episode completely dedicated to questions about fracture healing, and hopefully this episode will have prepared you for that question review session. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. If you're enjoying the podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks so much, and we'll see you all tomorrow.